Well, if you uh, have your Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7, Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit this morning in Exodus. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, but you have your phone and have the version or the Bible app, you can follow along on there. Uh, if you've uh, not been here before, uh, when you open the version app, the Bible app, on the bottom there's a spot where it says more. If you click on that, uh, click on events, uh, Cornerstone should be one of the first ones that pop up. Uh, all of our scriptures and everything that we're using this morning will be on there, so you can follow along with that. And uh, over the last several of weeks, we have been in the book of Exodus, and everything has kind of been building and leading to where we find ourselves this morning. After Joseph and his family uh, passed away, there was a new Pharaoh who took over, and to this Pharaoh, Joseph meant nothing. He wasn't uh, familiar with him, or if he was familiar with him, he just chose not to remember everything that Joseph and his family had done for Egypt. And so they're put into slavery and suffering. But through all of this, God hears the cry, or he hears the cry, he hears the uh, the suffering, the groaning of his people. And so he goes to Moses and he calls Moses and tells Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt and you are going to help bring my people, the Israelites, out of the hands of Egypt. And uh, just know that I'm going to send you and Pharaoh, he's not going to listen to what you have to say and he's not going to let the people go and so I'm going to step in and I'm going to intervene and I'm going to uh, use my mighty hand to help him get the message. He's going to learn very quickly uh, that I am not playing around. And of course, you know, Moses goes through this list of excuses that we often go through when we feel like God has called us to something. Uh, God surely uh, I'm not the right person to do this job. There's other people more qualified, uh, better candidates who could go and do what it is that you've asked me to do. There's other people, and what if they don't believe what I have to say anyway? Or, uh, you know, just all these excuses, and yet God says, this is what you're going to do. And he gives him Aaron to be a mouthpiece for him, and, you know, he's going to go along with him, and Aaron will be the one that speaks, and Moses will uh, be the one who helps put these uh, plans into motion, and, and there's going to be this team here. And so they go to Pharaoh, and they tell Pharaoh, hey, let our people go so we can go for three days to offer sacrifices. And, of course, Pharaoh, just as God said, doesn't listen. He says, no, I'm not going to let you do this. And he increases the suffering of the Israelites. And yet God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring them out. I am going to uh, bring my people out of their suffering, out of the hands of Egypt. And so far, everything has played out exactly as I told you it would. I told you Pharaoh wasn't going to listen. I told you it was going to take something big. And that is where we find ourselves this morning. We find ourselves dealing with some plagues. And this story of the plagues, it's familiar. We've heard this story. We've read about this story in children's church and growing up. But the thing I think so often about when it comes to the Old Testament is sometimes because it seems like it was so long ago, so far away, there's nothing relevant for us today. And that's simply not true. And in the plagues, we find 
themes and warnings and reminders that are more culturally relevant today than we could ever imagine. And so this is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And so we're going to start off first, before we cover some of these major themes, first we need to go through these plagues and talk about why these plagues were important and what the purpose of these plagues were. And so we're going to start first in Exodus chapter 7, verse 19. This is what it says. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. And so God appears to Moses and Aaron and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go before Pharaoh. I want you to go before Pharaoh and confront him and take your hand in the staff that was turned into or changed from a snake. And he gives them this command. He tells them, I want you to do what I tell you, and the Nile River is going to turn to blood. This is incredibly important, what happens here. You see, the Nile River was the livelihood of Egypt. This was the lifeblood, if you will, of Egypt. It was the most important thing in Egypt. Why is that? Well, during the time of the year when the flood waters would rise, it would saturate the soil to help grow crops in areas that were usually deserts. It was important because it was the water that they would drink. The fish of the river were important to them as well. To say that this would be a catastrophic event is an understatement. And, you know, many people want to try to come up with reasons to say that this wasn't really blood. Some commentators, biblical commentators, say that maybe it wasn't so much that the water turned to blood, but just a reddish color. It could have been a fungi, a red vegetable matter, teeny bugs that were red that causes this river to turn to the appearance of blood. And there are some that say maybe that's possibly the case. Scripture says blood, so I tend to believe that it was actual blood. If it wasn't actual blood, then there was something else in the water because it just being red wouldn't have caused all the fish to die. It wouldn't have caused the water to stink, and it wouldn't have caused the water to be undrinkable. See, millions of fish died. The water they used for everything became unusable. This would have been catastrophic. This takes place for seven days, the Nile water. And then there's the magicians we see after this. They come and they recreate this. This was probably more of a sleight of hand and illusion by the magicians because where did they get clean water? All the water has been turned to blood. And so we see this illusion, this sleight of hand by the magicians. Then the plagues continue in Exodus chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. 
And so this next plague is known as the plague of frogs. And a lot of times we kind of read this and just say, how oh, that would have been annoying. Frogs coming up from everywhere. Well, you've got to think about the importance here of frogs. To the Egyptians, frogs represented fertility. And so if somebody injured a frog, they risked being punished severely by their frog god, which we'll talk about more here in a little bit. And so what does God do? He sends frogs all over the land. They are everywhere and in everything. They're in people's houses, in their beds, in their kitchens, everywhere frogs. Everywhere frogs. And so what did the magicians do? Well, guess what? We can recreate this. We can create more frogs. And if people didn't like the magicians, they especially don't like them now because they're already got frogs everywhere and the magicians are like, more frogs. And so he goes before Pharaoh, Moses does, and he asks him, when can I pray for you to end this? And what does Pharaoh say? Tomorrow, tomorrow. Not today, no, do, do it tomorrow. And so he prays for him, and we see all the frogs die. We see God put down all these frogs, all these frogs die. It says uh, they were in the, the houses and the courtyards and the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. How crazy. What represents fertility now represents heaps of death all around Egypt. The plagues continue. In Exodus 8, verses 16 through 18, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. We see Aaron strike his staff on the ground and the dust becomes gnats, or uh, some say gnats, some say it was possibly lice, some say it was possibly mosquitoes. Whatever the case, they come out and they are all over the people. They are all over the livestock. They're in people's eyes, in their mouths. That's how bad it would have been. All over the place, gnats, lice, mosquitoes, whatever you want to call them. And here's the thing. This time, the magicians, they couldn't replicate it. They try, we can't do this. And so, ma a matter of fact, they say this. This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. This is nothing. We can't compete. We can't do this. We might have been able to use our secret arts, our illusions, these uh, first couple of plagues, but not here. And then we see it continue in chapter 8. Verses 20 through 24. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and in your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even, in the, gro even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. 
this is interesting. The first three plagues, it affected everyone, or Egyptians, Israelites, all the same. And yet here we see God keeping the flies out of Goshen where the Israelites were staying. And we see the land covered by dense swarms of flies. And this is not the annoying flies that, that we think of, you know, the ones that will buzz around and we just want to smack them with the flies to water. These were probably different types of flies. Some say it could have been possibly beetles, but many who say that this was in fact flies say that this was a fly known as the dog fly, also known as a stable fly. And the difference between these flies and these annoying flies that we swat in our kitchen is that these flies could bite. These flies could bite, and because these flies could bite, it would have been incredibly uncomfortable for the people. They were all over the people. They were all over the livestock. They were everywhere. As a matter of fact, it would have been even worse considering there were heaps and piles of dead frogs everywhere, and so flies would have been attracted to this. This would have made things worse than they already were. And then he continues in Exodus 9, verses 1 through 7. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock, in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. And so, just like the last plague, this time this plague impacts just the Egyptians and not the Israelites. This would have been a big blow to them economically. They used these animals for things like milk, wool, eggs, meat, leathers, skins, horns, and fat. So many different uses for these, all these different livestock that they had. But not even just from an economic thing, but from a religious sense. These animals, these livestock, they would be, be worshipped. They would be used for sacrifices. And some ask the question, is this a contradiction? If you look over at chapter 9, verse 9, it says that, you know, the next plague will affect animals as well. The question is, if he got rid of the livestock, then where was the livestock? How did, you know, it get on these Egyptian people's livestock? Well, there's a reason for this. There's explanations for this. Some say that it was possibly a, quite a while in between plagues. I'm not really of that mindset. But I think more the logical answer is, you know, these could have been imported or taken from neighboring countries, or more realistically, the Egyptians will later take the livestock from the Israelites. If you think about it, they're still slaves, and so they could come to the Israelites and say, give us your livestock because you are our slaves. That's possible. And it is possible that it could denote just a very large quantity, not every single animal. It doesn't tell us for sure. All it tells us is the livestock were killed. There's probably possible explanations for where, it come, where livestock come from later. But then we move on to the next plague. It's chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take the handfuls of soot from a furnace, and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. 
It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Now, I am not a doctor, but I'm thankful for things such as WebMD that can help me with things, or I guess I know some people here who work in uh, the medical profession. I could have just asked for, uh, but I, I went to WebMD to figure out what exactly is a boil. It's a contagious skin infection. It starts in the hair follicle or oil gland. First, the skin turns red in the area of the infection. A tender lump develops, and after four to seven days, starts filling with fluid under the skin. And now think about that, and think about the fact that this was on all the people and the animals who were Egyptian. That would have been a very uncomfortable situation for each of them. But then it continues. And we seem, it seems like these are building up in a, a crescendo. Next one, it's in chapter 9, verses 13 through 26. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. At this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. And those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the hail will fall all over, earth, or all over Egypt, on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashes down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hell fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. This was a powerful display. God brings upon the land the worst storm that Egypt has ever experienced since it became a nation. Anything that was not taken into shelter was struck down. Animals, people, if they were out in the storm, they were struck down. The crops would be destroyed. Flax, barley, which would have been used for making bread, beer, and porridge. It was used also to produce flour. Everything, that all the crops, the fruits of the trees, destroyed. This is a huge deal as far as their economy goes. Farming was a major part of the economy. This would have been huge to them because they were also mostly a vegetarian nation. They didn't eat a lot of meat, and so for their crops to be destroyed was a huge blow. 
and you think it couldn't get any worse than this, well, it continues in verse 12, or chapter 10, verse 12. It says this. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt, so the locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. If the hail didn't get it before, now this one would. The locusts were there to finish everything off. And because Pharaoh wouldn't listen, we see an invasion that was never seen before and will never be seen again. All the ground was black because there were so many locusts that devoured everything that was left. And here's something that's pretty interesting. A locust can eat their own body weight of food each and every day. Now imagine that and imagine so many that you can't see anything but locust. Something we'll talk about more here in just a little bit was... uh, you know, some of these gods, false gods that they have, but there was a god of locusts. And can you imagine each and every one of these people stepping on locusts, stepping on the same thing that they worship, crushing the thing that it is they worship? But then it continues in chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Next plague is a plague of darkness, a plague of darkness that was so dark that people could see nothing around them. It was pitch black for three days. And it says that it was a darkness that could be felt I don't know if I've ever been in something so dark where it's like, man, I just feel darkness around me. And that's how dark this place was. But it is kind of funny to me that right here in Egypt, there's darkness. But over in uh, where the Israelites were, it's light. There's no problem with that. How interesting that must have looked. And it's interesting here that there's light for the Israelites, darkness for the Egyptians. When you consider whereas light represents life and warmth, Darkness is cold and it represents death, judgment, and hopelessness. Two things happening at the exact same time between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And then we go to Exodus 11. And we go to verse 4. This is what it says. It says, So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. You skip over to chapter 12, verse 29. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And this is one of the most talked about moments in all of Scripture. It's one of the biggest moments in the history of Scripture. And it's something that shows the extreme that God is willing to go to. In this plague, there was no option of repentance. Moses and Aaron would not confront Pharaoh and give him the chance. Every firstborn son in Egypt, human and animal, every firstborn son would die on this night unless they followed the instructions given to them. They were to slaughter a Passover lamb and dip hyssop in the blood and put it over the door frame. And as long as they would do that, the firstborn son would be spared in this Passover. And that night it happened just as it was promised. This is the move that finally pushes Pharaoh into saying, go, take your stuff, take your livestock, and go. And so I said there were some reminders and some warnings from these plagues. And so let's talk about these for a little bit. I think they're the first reminder that we can take from the story of the plagues is this, that God is sovereign over all his creation. God is sovereign over all of his creation. God's sovereignty means that he has the power, the wisdom, and authority to do anything that he so chooses to do with his creation. And whatever he chooses to do, he is just in what he does. The plagues show God's ability to do what he wants with creation. Water, land, nature, all of it impacted by his ability to do what he wants with his creation. Look at what he does for his people. He protects his people during the plagues. He gives them light when it's dark in Egypt, protects Goshen from the storm while Egypt gets hit hard. And we see over and over God has the right, God exercises his right to do what he wants with his creation because God is sovereign over his creation. Scripture tells us this in Colossians 1, 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. All things were created for him by him. He is sovereign over his creation, and he can choose to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with his creation, with his people, with all of these things. And that begs us to ask the question, and it's a question that I'm sure, if we are all to be honest, each and every one of us in this room has asked this question at least once in our life. If God is sovereign, then blank. If God is sovereign, then why does he do this? If God is sovereign, then why doesn't he stop this? Why does he allow this to take place? If God is sovereign, he could just easily do whatever he wants to do and fix the situation, could he not? He could have just easily struck down Pharaoh and said, you know what, I'm taking my people. There is no question about what I'm going to do, but he doesn't do that. If he's sovereign, then fill in the blank. Well, I think got questions, I would say, answers this better than I could. And they say this, God has the ability to do anything, to take action and to intervene in any situation, but he often chooses to act indirectly or to allow certain things for reasons of his own. His will is furthered in any case. God's sovereignty means that he is absolute in authority and unrestricted in his supremacy. 
Everything that happens is, at the very least, the result of God's permissive will. This holds true, even if certain specific things are not what he would prefer. The right of God to allow mankind's free choices is just as necessary for true sovereignty as his ability to enact his will wherever and however he chooses. We don't have to, you know, we can try to ask God why, 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 but whatever he decides to do, he is right and just in doing so. And that is, you know, we struggle with this. Man, why did he have to go through this? Why did she have to go through this? Why did they have to face this challenge? Why? I think it, you know, not, not everything. We like to say that God causes these things. He doesn't. I think of Job. I think of Job. He didn't, God didn't cause all the issues that Job had, but he allowed these things to happen because at the end of this, you know, he trusts in God and what happens to Job. Everything comes back to him. He's blessed at the end of the story. Sometimes things don't go according to our plan. Things don't go according to how we think they should. But God can take the bad and he can turn it and use it for good. He can allow the things that to have something better come out of it. We have to remember that he is sovereign. That God is sovereign over all of his creation. And whatever he does is just. What's the other uh, what's another thing that we can learn from this? Well, I think the second thing is this. Our God is unmatched. Our God is unmatched. There is no other God but our God. There's no other God but ours. These plagues prove that the enemy is no match for God. Let's think about Egypt for a second here. Egypt was actually a very religious place. It was a very religious place. They uh, believed in what is known as polytheism, and polytheism is the belief in multiple gods. There's several different gods, and they believed that. They had gods for everything. There were gods for everything. And what's so interesting is these plagues just aren't judgment against Pharaoh. Each of these plagues are a judgment against one of the gods of Egypt. Let's look at the plagues for a second. So there's the, the Nile turning to blood. There was an Egyptian god named Canaan, and Canaan was the, the, one of the main gods of the rivers. There was a god named Happy, and the people believed in these gods to protect the Nile River. It's also believed that the uh, Nile River was the bloodstream of a god named Os uh, Osiris, and Osiris was kind of the main uh, one of the main creator gods in their eyes. There was a goddess named Neith. Neith was the, the goddess who cared for the fish of the waters. What about the frogs? Well, there was actually a goddess named Heket, and Heket was the frog-headed goddess of fertility. The gnats from dust, there was a god named Geb, and Geb was the god of over the dust of the earth. And there was a god named Set, who was the god of deserts and storms. For the flies, uh, there was a god named uh, Adichit, and he was the fly god. There was a livestock god called Hathor, the goddess often depicted with her head, her ears are in the form of a cow. There was the goddess Apis, and these goddesses were in charge of livestock. The boils, there was a god named Skemet, who was, or was a goddess named Skemet, who was the goddess of power over disease. Sunu was the pestilence god. Isis was the goddess of healing. Serapis was a goddess healing. 
the hailstorm and the locusts, there was a goddess named Nut. Seth was the god over the crops. In the darkness, there was a sun god named Re or Ra, who was seen as the creator of the universe in their eyes and the source of life. They worshipped the sun often. This god was actually symbolized by Pharaoh himself. And then the firstborn son. There was Isis, the goddess who protected the women and children. There was Men, the god of reproduction. Heket, the goddess of birth. And Pharaoh himself was seen as a god to many. Each and every plague, a judgment against each of these false gods. And when these plagues came, where were all of these false gods? Where were they? They didn't show up to protect the people. They were worshipped and people put their faith in him. But when the time came and when the people needed their gods, they were nowhere to be seen. Why was this the case? Because they're not real. These gods weren't real. They were false idols created by Satan. They were demonic forces, but they were not actually gods. These people put their faith in gods who are not the one true God, and it was proven that there was one true God through all of these. And let's look at Pharaoh's magicians. They might have been able to perform these counterfeit miracles at the beginning with sleights of hand and trickery. But guess what? When it came down to it, they could do too, but then after that, they had to admit that this is the finger of God on us. This is not anything that we can do. And then what of Pharaoh? Pharaoh even gets to a point where he has no choice but to let the people go. And even then, he'll try to chase after them later. Here's the thing. We know that our enemy, Satan, is no match for God. And But before, here's the deal. Before we say, oh, you foolish, foolish Egyptians for putting your faith in other things besides the one true God, guess what? We do the exact same thing. Our false gods just go by different names. Our false gods go by different names. They go by different things. But we do worship false gods more than we would care to admit. What are they? You might be saying, what are these false gods? What about money? How much of our worship goes into money? We're obsessed with it. We're obsessed with money. We're obsessed with what money can do for us and what money can bring us. We shouldn't be. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10 reminds us those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Oh, and then there's the God or goddess of pleasure, isn't there? Man, we love our pleasure. We want to be able to do what we want, when we want, how we want, with no questions asked. We want to be able to indulge in whatever we want to indulge in. First John 2, 15 through 17 reminds us, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What other false idols do we have? What about power? We crave power, don't we? What about success? We go after success with everything that's in us where it becomes an obsession. What about technology and social media? It becomes a thing that drives us and motivates us, and all we do is bow down to those things. What about sex? Pornography is one of the most uh, one of the biggest revenue streams in our country. 
I like these words that Jonah says in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn from God's love for them. And how often do we cling to worthless idols? How often do we cling to things that are only going to bring us despair? We believe that these things will bring merit, happiness, joy, peace, and yet we forget all of these things really bring us nothing. These things are fleeting. And while they may bring temporary satisfaction, we end up left wanting and desiring more. What we need to do is we need to follow the advice of Scripture. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 1 John 5, 19 through 21, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Our God is bigger than the enemy we face. Our God is bigger than any of these idols that we have. And so what we need to do is we need to turn our face and our lives away from these false idols and we need to turn to him instead. He is so much better and bigger than the things of this world. And so we see that God is sovereign and we know that God is unmatched. And here's a warning for us. Rejecting God will bring ruin. Rejecting God will bring ruin. Let's return to Pharaoh for a minute. Let's look at how he responds to the plagues. Let's look at how he responds to the Nile being turned into blood. It says Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. When it came to the frogs, Moses asked when he can pray for him and his officials and they, so that they can get rid of the frogs. And he says, tomorrow, after God kills off the frogs, Pharaoh sees this and hardens his heart and won't listen to God, or Moses, well, and God. The gnats, even after the magicians say that this is the finger of God on them, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen. The flies, Pharaoh tells them that they can sacrifice, but it has to be in Egypt. Moses tells them that this would not work because their God is detestable in the eyes of the Egyptians, and if they were to do that, they could be stoned. Pharaoh then says, okay, just don't go very far. Moses prays and the flies go away, but Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. The livestock, his heart was unyielding and he would not let his people go. The boils, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen. The hail, Pharaoh said he repents, but Moses knows that he doesn't truly fear God. Pharaoh's heart is hard and he does not listen. The locusts, before the plague, Pharaoh tells them to go offer sacrifices, but the men only. After the plague, another statement of repentance, but after it was over, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, and he would not let the Israelites go. The darkness, Pharaoh tells them to take the men, women, and children and go, but they have to leave their livestock. This would be counterproductive because they need the livestock for sacrifices. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And this time he tells Moses that if he sees him again, he's going to die. The firstborn, he tells Moses and Aaron, all, you, all of you leave, take your people and go. And then he asks for a blessing. But even then, he'll chase them. And you know, I've heard people say that Pharaoh had his heart hardened and so he didn't know any better. God hardened his heart, so how did Pharaoh even have a chance? But here's the thing. Who hardened his heart in several of these instances? 
It wasn't God. He allowed it, but it wasn't him. Pharaoh hardened his own heart several times. This wasn't like God hardened the heart of somebody who was a devout follower. No, this was somebody who had pride and arrogance. And several of these instances show that he hardened his own heart. And here's the sad truth. So many people today will choose just not to listen to God. They're going to continue to choose sin and set themselves up for ruin. What are some of the causes for this? I think pride is a huge issue. So often in our pride, we choose to not listen to God and choose to listen to those around us or belief in ourselves, and we become so prideful that our heart becomes hard with pride and arrogance. Proverbs 11.2 reminds us when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. But I think there is something else here that hardens our hearts. And I think it's this idea of continual and unrepentant sin, habitual sin, refusing to quit what we are doing, knowing that what we are doing is wrong, and yet we continue to return to it over and over and over, and we fail to repent of our sin over and over and over again. And over time, it hardens our heart, and it leads to our downfall. And if anybody said this better, then if there could be anybody who could say this better, it would be Paul. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1, 18-24. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since they may be known about God, or since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And what I get from that is after all this time that we continue to harden our hearts, after all this time we turn or continue to be unrepentant, after all these times that we just go over and over and over these things that we know we struggle with, we know that we should give up, but we keep going back to them, after a while, we're just giving over to them. And it leads to ruin. And so what do we need to do? Well, it's simple. We need to repent and we need to return from our, our we need to turn from our sin. We need to repent and turn from our sin. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Proverbs 28.13, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we need to remember that if we choose to ignore God, if we choose to reject God, ruin will come. But I think there's one more very important thing that we take from this, and it's this. God is in control. God is in control. 
each of these plagues remind us of a very key thing. God is in control. And through these plagues, Pharaoh and the Egyptians would learn that there is one true God and he is in control. And through these plagues, the Israelites would be reminded that God is in control. He has done everything that he said he would do. He's reminding them through the plagues, I am doing exactly what I said would happen. With everything they have gone through and everything that they will go through, the people of God would be able to look at this moment and say, this is when God saved his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. We would be reminded that God is in control. And I think this is a reminder that we very much need today. The world around us seems like things are bad. Seems like things are bad. It seems like the things we see in media, the rampant sin in this world, all around us, things seem like they have gone from bad to worse. But here's the thing, God is in control. Or maybe it's on a more personal level in your life. Maybe things seem to be going opposite of the way that you would like them to. Maybe things aren't going according to the, thing, or the way that you had hoped. Things aren't going according to your plan, your desires, the things that you had in mind. And so, for so many, they try to figure out where to put their hope. We'll put our hope in politics, right? Whatever party we vote for, that'll be the, that's where we put our hope. Or we put our hope in false idols that we mentioned earlier. Or, in a lot of cases, we even try to put our hope in ourselves, right? If God won't step in and do what I want him to do, then I'll have to do it myself. But we need to remember that God is in control. God is in control. When it feels like the world is against us, God is in control. Deuteronomy 31a, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. God is with us. God is for us. God goes before us. He is in control. When it feels like our plans are not going according to our design, God is in control. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. We have plans. We have desires. We have this picture for how things should go. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. I think we just need to remember the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8-11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my, or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God is in control. In all situations, in all aspects of life, whatever is happening in our world today, whatever is happening in your own life today, God is in control. And I love how Charles Swindoll says it. He says, when you accept the fact that sometimes seasons are dry and times are hard and that God is in control of both, you will discover a sense of divine refuge because the hope then is in God and not in yourself. We need to remember that God is in control. God is in control. He has always been in control. He will always continue to be in control. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they make their way up here, 
Maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in God. Maybe you've never put your faith in Him, your trust in Him. What better day to do that than today? You see, you can put your faith in a God that is sovereign. You can put your faith in a God who is sovereign, who can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, with His creation. He is a sovereign God. He's big, He's powerful, but He is just. And He is full of grace and mercy. You can give your life to a God who is unmatched. The things of this world, the idols of this world, they're going to leave you left wanting. But guess what? God doesn't. Our God cannot be beat. There is one true God, one real God. And we can put our faith in Him. We can put our faith this morning in a God who is in control. When everything seems to be falling apart, when things don't seem like they're going according to our plan, we can give our life to a God who is in control of all of those things. And we can do all of this because of the gift that he's given us in his son. The son who came, who lived, who died on the cross for us, his blood shed for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here is our choice. We can receive that gift or we can ignore it. You don't have to accept him. You can choose not to, but I warn you that ruin comes when we decide to ignore God. So we can ignore him or we can choose to give a life to him. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, on your connect cards and the chairs around you, you can write that down. I'd love to talk with you. You can come and talk with me today. I'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here and you've just let the things of this world or the stresses of life keep you from remembering just who it is that you serve. We don't serve a a false God. No, we serve a big and powerful and mighty one true God. Maybe this morning what we need to do is we just need to take some time and take those things that are keeping us from him, keeping us from remembering who he is, taking those things and laying them down at his feet. In the chair that you're in, you can spend some time in prayer. You can come pray with me. I'd love to pray with you. Man, we serve a God who is big. He is sovereign. He is unmatched. There is no other God like him. There is no other God but him. And he is in control. So if you're here this morning and you have a decision to make, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing this song.